This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. In our last episode, we got a real history lesson about the experience of Black entrepreneurs Willa and Charles Bruce, whose successful beach club near Los Angeles was essentially stolen from them through a racist use of eminent domain. Now, the reparations recently made to the Bruce's descendant, those were exciting and important. And I want you to go back and listen to that episode if you haven't heard it yet. But it is also exciting and important to invest in the success of today's Black entrepreneurs. So often, small business startups are also key to the success of their communities because they provide local essential services. They hire local residents and they invest resources in their neighborhoods. And some interesting things have been happening with Black-owned small businesses over the last few years. So we decided that now is a good time to return to our 2021 episode on how pro bono lawyers are helping entrepreneurs in Detroit, Michigan. And we're going to give you some updates on trends for Black-owned businesses nationally and on the partnership between the law firm Miller Canfield and the Osborne Business Association in Detroit. But first, we do have to start with the bad news trends that we saw for Black-owned businesses. In 2020, the early days of the pandemic, Black-owned small businesses were five times more likely not to get a paycheck protection loan from the federal government. Given that, it is unsurprising that they also closed down at twice the rate of other businesses in 2020. So when we did that episode back in 2021, we started with an expert asking about the trends and which businesses were getting the resources they needed to weather the pandemic. COVID-19 to me is just peeling back the layer to things we've already known. We know that, you know, for small businesses in marginalized communities, having access to the very sort of federal tools that are out there, the realities of of how that played itself out, to me, are indicative of things that existed even before COVID-19. Access is not equitable. Resources are not divided in a way that meet those that have the most critical needs. It's being able to call a thing a thing. Right. Being able to say this is what it is. This is historically based in in systems of oppression in our country. And we know this. But how are we getting on the other side of it? That's Shamil Dobbs, CEO of Michigan Community Resources, a Detroit nonprofit that connects community based organizations to legal resources. We featured Shamil Dobbs and Michigan Community Resources in our last episode. In this episode, we decided to take a deep dive into answering Shamil's question. How are we getting on the other side of historical discrimination? Once we see how past practices have prevented economic development in communities of color, how do we reverse the trend? How do we build communities up? We'll learn how Michigan Community Resources matched up a Detroit Neighborhood Association and the law firm of Miller Canfield Paddock and Stone to work on that question. And we'll see how they have been partnering 
to strengthen small businesses owned by people of color in Detroit's low-income communities. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. Early in the pandemic shutdown, we were lucky to spend time talking with Paul Garrison of the Osborne Business Association and Tom Lynn of Miller Canfield about their passion for their mutual hometown of Detroit and about their partnership to directly address the accumulated effects of systemic racism by building the capacity of Detroit entrepreneurs. Just a note, some of the audio might be hard to hear, but this conversation is too important to let a little internet choppiness get in the way. My name is Paul Anthony Garrison, and I'm the director for the Osborne Business Association. Just for background, the Osborne Business Association is a division of the Osborne Neighborhood Alliance. Our executive director is Mr. Quincy Jones, and it is a community-based organization in Northeast Detroit that bring the residents together, gather them, clean the community, strengthen the community, help stabilize the community. We focus on working with, with those entrepreneurs and small business owners in low to moderate income neighborhoods and helping to rebuild, restabilize the neighborhoods, the economies and skills in the neighborhoods, and of course, help those individuals create wealth uh, and sustainability in the neighborhoods. So, You've been doing this particular role since 2015. What drew you to this kind of work? So I'm a born and raised Detroiter, educated in Detroit public schools. So I grew up in a time in Detroit, and my grandparents, uh, Helen and William Hagler, my work is done in honor and memory of them. And they were one of the first African-American Black uh, property owners, residential homeowners, in what was called Coney Gardens. Coney Gardens was the first Black middle-class, African-American middle-class neighborhood in the city of Detroit where Blacks were able to actually own their own homes. And so in answer to your question, what led me to do my work? I grew up in a Detroit that did not have blight. And there were African-American business owners and businesses that existed that we were able to go to. And what happened over the course of 20, 30, 40 years was the eradication, the breakdown of the economies and neighborhoods in the city of Detroit. We had the mortgage foreclosure crisis that took place like in 2007, 2008, but prior to that, there's something that's called white flight or urban flight. Urban flight took place in Detroit and it really started around, after 1968, 1969, the riots. So I saw myself being angry at what I was seeing in my city. Neighborhoods that was blighted. You couldn't even believe what was existing in these neighborhoods. So I went back to school to get my master's so that I can work toward being part of a change solution. And in urban planning economic development, you learn about, and this is very crucial, critical. But what drew me to this work? My grandfather taught us when we were young. 
Do not complain about anything. And if you are not part of the solution, then you are part of the problem. So we wish to be part of the solution. Uh, so, Tom, would you tell us about your work and your career as a lawyer at Miller Canfield? I'm uh, Tom Lim. I'm a longtime lawyer at Miller Canfield, a commercial finance lawyer. I've always had a interest in pro bono activities. When I was an active finance lawyer, I would uh, often volunteer for a Detroit Bar Association clinic and so forth. I had a stint in the administration of my law firm. And uh, I was the CEO for about eight years, stepping down about 12 years ago. After I stepped down, I agreed to take over the firm's pro bono activities. And it's really been a wonderful experience for me. And I'm so thankful that the firm has really enabled me to uh, become quite active in not only pro bono, but other efforts to improve social justice in our community and other charitable and civic things. For four or five years, I ran our pro bono program. And uh, one of those things while I was doing that was the firm began an association with the Osborne Business Association. At first, another lawyer was the principal contact, but uh, three or four years ago, that lawyer left the firm. And uh, I've really been the firm's principal contact with the Osborne Business Association since. And it's really been a great experience. It's been a pleasure working with Paul and his colleagues. And for me, it's actually a bit nostalgic because I grew up about a half mile from the offices of the Osborne Business Association. So whenever I go to their cohort seminars, it's almost like I'm going home. Now, I'm a Michigander by birth, and I have lots of family around the state. My grandfather even owned a GM parts factory in Michigan. And everyone in this episode is a University of Michigan graduate. But Paul and Tom aren't just Michiganders. They are Detroiters, born and raised and still living in the city itself, with a passion and commitment to the place and its history that comes through whenever they talk about it. For the first half of the 20th century, uh, was one of the wealthiest cities in the world. That was because for reasons uh, which might be as accidental as where Henry Ford was born, uh, Detroit became the um, center of the greatest industry of the early 20th century, the production of automobiles. And in 1950, Detroit was the third largest city in the United States, probably with almost 2 million people. And there were probably, you know, Seven or 800,000 people who worked in the automotive industry. And Detroit was built really to house those workers. And of course, through automation, through um, you know, international growth of the auto industry, which made the Detroit and US auto industry less important, there were far, far fewer individuals employed, not only in Detroit, but all over the world in the manufacturing of automobiles. And so now Detroit has 650,000 people approximately and used to have 2 million, you know, the movement to the suburbs. And uh, initially that was white people. But in recent years, I think number of middle class African-Americans have also moved to the suburbs. And so the population in Detroit is much smaller and, and relatively poorer than it used to be. And the blight and the abandonment has, uh, you know, been a heavy burden for the city. 
I would say in the last 10 years, Detroit's uh, future has looked brighter. Detroit went through a historic bankruptcy that left Detroit in a far stronger financial position. So I think many neighborhoods in Detroit are looking better now than they did five or 10 years ago. And that includes the neighborhoods around uh, the Osborne Business Association, where there used to be three or four abandoned homes. Now, some of them are removed. The side lots have been sold at a, at a bargain price to the neighbors, and neighbors have taken those side lots and turned them into uh, gardens or, or recreational areas for their families. So One has to understand Detroit historically. Detroit, in 1967-68, had the race riots. And then after the race riots, you had flight, urban flight. And I call it urban flight, not white flight, because as Tom mentioned, there are several individuals that moved from Detroit to the suburb. It wasn't just Caucasians or whites. There were people of color that was middle class that moved out of Detroit, too. So therein lies the removal of the economy. Detroit had so many businesses at that time that was minority-owned because of the auto industry. So a lot of these minority-owned businesses were auto suppliers, but they had some type of connection in doing business to the auto industry. And thus, Detroit was a one-horse town. Now, no urban planner wants a economy to be a one-industry economy. Detroit being an automotive industry, when, when the, um, the global market economy came about, the trade agreements came about, that allow for services to be done in other countries, productions to take place in other countries. So my point is this, there are a lot of different factors that have impacted Detroit reduction in population, reduction in the economy, and then even making it even harder for individuals that have been excluded and discriminated against. So what we are seeking to do today and the work that we do with Miller Campbell Law Firm and Oberyn and the New Economy Initiative, we are seeking to restore hope. It is clear that Detroiters would benefit from some robust support for people to start and grow new businesses. But a new business usually also requires financial investment, whether it's paying the owner a salary until the business is profitable or buying equipment or supplies to create a product. People need upfront cash to make business work. What do we know about access to upfront cash in black households? Because of historical discrimination in housing and education, black families are less likely to have wealth they can pass down, less likely to have networks that can invest money, and more likely to be called upon to use their own income to assist family members in financial crisis. And what about borrowing from banks? A 2017 Federal Reserve Bank study found that Black-owned small businesses apply for credit more than white-owned firms, but their approval rates are 19 percentage points lower than for white-owned firms. When businesses that did not apply for credit were surveyed, 40% of the Black-owned firms said they didn't try because they did not think they would be approved. What do those numbers mean for understanding what Detroit entrepreneurs are facing when they start a business? Well, around 90% of Detroit's residents are people of color, and more than three-quarters are Black. When we talk about the needs of Detroit, we're talking about the needs of Black and Brown communities. When we talk about Detroit's small business owners, we have to talk about the struggle for those communities to access capital. 
the area where the Osborne Business Association is located is one of the areas of Detroit that's been most severely impacted by abandonment of the city that Paul referenced, flight to the suburbs and so forth. There's a lot of neighborhoods that are, a lot of them are improving, but they were badly impacted by the abandonment of the housing stock and the commercial real estate. You know, the the members of uh, Paul's courts are enthusiastic and eager. Most of them have, uh, I think, an interesting, potentially successful business idea. A lot of them don't have a lot of the knowledge of how to do that. And also, I think a lot of them don't have ready access to capital. So if you don't have access to capital, how are you going to even remotely exist within the United States of America, which is a capitalistic nation? And so we are here today to talk about the things that need to be done, and that's to help these small business owners be able to meet the criteria and threshold to get approved for loans, lines of credits, grants, microloans, et cetera. Paul worries that many neighborhood businesses in Detroit won't get access to loans and credit because they have not moved from the informal economy to the formal economy. I asked Paul to explain what he means by that. Well, you have a lot of entrepreneurs and small business owners in neighborhoods, and they could be a minority or, or otherwise, that in operating their business, they may not have everything in a formal business perspective. For example, they may not have a properly legal entity, be it a corporation, a C, a sole proprietor. They may not, be, may not have registered properly to be existing as a business in that capacity. They may not have taken care of their tax returns, which all this is necessary for a business entrepreneur to become what is called capital ready. Because if you don't have all those things in place, then it's really hard to grow, right? Um, And if there's a crisis, you're likely to go out of business because it's hard to get help because everything is too informal. Yeah, absolutely correct. And what what we're dealing with right now here today, which is pandemic, there are different uh, grants that are available. There are loans that are available. Some have become available uh, through monies that have come through by way of the federal government. But you also have funds that have been created by foundations, organizations, or corporations. And so if that entrepreneur small business owner is not capital ready and have not dotted the day I's and crossed their T's that's within our capital readiness checklist to help them, they're not going to be able to receive that funding. And so we have a tool that we have a tool that we came up with. It's called the Capital Readiness Checklist. And this is an actual physical, digital, electronically available tool to help entrepreneurs and small business owners understand what it is they need to do to become capital ready. In addition to creating the Capital Readiness Checklist, the Osborne Business Association took their programming a step further by creating a business cohort program where a wide variety of small business owners participate in a multi-week course that covers topics like business plans, basic accounting, and marketing. When Paul Garrison realized that the course also needed to cover legal issues, he reached out to Michigan Community Resources for help, and they made the connection to Miller Canfield. So Paul mentioned Michigan Community Resources. One of its principal functions, actually, is connecting uh, pro bono lawyers to nonprofits that serve low income communities. And uh, several years ago, when uh, Jill Ferrari, who was then the CEO of Michigan Community Resources, 
was looking to find a partner for the Osborne Business Association. I was actually on the board of MCR, and Jill asked us if we would uh, partner with Osborne, and we uh, readily agreed to do that. And uh, so since that time, about five years, uh, every quarter, uh, we've done an approximately two-hour seminar with the 15 or 20 members of the respective Osborne Business Association cohort. So I've been constant. I think I've been at every session. And uh, I recruit several other Miller Canfield lawyers. Usually there's a labor employment lawyer, a business slash real estate lawyer, and usually an IP lawyer. Sometimes those are relatively junior lawyers at the firm, but often they're relatively senior lawyers. Recently, for the last couple of sessions, I've had one of our most seasoned IP lawyers who's actually regaled the cohort with very interesting stories about his IP work in the entertainment industry, which is of great interest to the cohorts because a number of them are actually in the entertainment music industries. I want to get a picture of what are the kind of businesses. Like, I don't think you're working with GM. No, no. (laughs) All of our entrepreneurs and small business owners are small businesses. We work with small businesses in the neighborhoods. And we help those small businesses start, grow, and become sustainable. We work with businesses that are in the food industry, in the cleaning industry, in the cleaning of residential homes, commercial homes. We have businesses that are in daycare home care, our adult care, businesses that are into technology, be it the creation of websites, be it utilization of social media, be it the creation of virtual, digital tools, instruments, directories, etc. There's a variety of these businesses. The Miller Canfield Law Firm has been extremely instrumental in helping these businesses, as we say, go from an informal to a formal economy. You know, dozens and dozens of businesses have been started. And when I drive around that part of Detroit, I often see names that I've heard before in the OBA, the Osborne Business Association roster of members. As really a business lawyer, that they're really, uh, a lot of business lawyers are reluctant to get involved in pro bono because uh, the uh, legal work they have to do is uh, so much different than their day-to-day work, uh, counseling big corporations, doing loans, you know, real estate deals and so forth. At Miller Canfield, I've been looking for ways to involve, you know, half our lawyers never go to court and uh, looking for opportunities to give them a taste of doing pro bono work and the professional satisfaction that that produces. Tom, I was interested when you said that um, the some of the lawyers that you recruit are very experienced. And we have sometimes heard pro bono leaders at other firms say that um, it's not that hard to get new lawyers, associates to do pro bono, but it can sometimes be a struggle to engage partners in pro bono. Do you have any thoughts about how this particular kind of pro bono work appeals to and engages the, the experienced senior partners? Working with the Osborne Business Association, Uh, Over five years, we've developed a fairly detailed outline of the topics we talk about. So it's easy to go to a senior lawyer and say, uh, you know, this is pretty straightforward. You know all these issues over the top of your tongue. And uh, 
and I think uh, it's it's really, I would say, quite satisfying uh, to go to the OBA and talk to the cohort. I think uh, the participants in the cohort are, are really interested, and they're attentive audience. They have a lot of questions, and I think uh, it sort of sells itself once you do it once. Once somebody goes, uh, they often are more than willing to go a second time. But I, I just think uh, it's really satisfying. The satisfaction takes care of the recruiting ultimately. Often after these sessions, we accept one or two of these new, new businesses as pro bono clients and help them with a legal problem. Often it's a formation issue, helping them create their LLC or corporation or other entity, helping them with an IAP problem, often a trademark or copyright issue. And sometimes I think one or two we've helped with a real estate issue, Paul, if I recall. But uh, I always uh, leave these sessions pretty enthusiastic because I often think that a number of these business people have gleaned some important information that'll get them uh, sort of around the next bend in their uh, journey becoming a successful business. And, and how did the, the lawyers that you recruit to help you, how do they feel about it? Well, you know, I've got a dozen or 15 lawyers who have participated and uh, a lot of them come back multiple times. And I just think it, it, it's a great association and everybody leaves there, not only with a better understanding of important legal issues, but a better understanding of some of the foundational issues we have in our society that have been highlighted recently uh, with the protests in our country. But what's important is that the movement gets to something even greater. You got the protests, but the protest needs to get to the movement, and the movement involves legal change, change in how things are done in order to bring about more fairness and a more equitable solution to people that have been disenfranchised, excluded, and left out of a system due to discrimination, institutional policies that have excluded them, etc. So what we are doing is directly bringing about a change in that. My objective when I go to these meetings is that a good number of them take away two or three seminal ideas that help them get to another level and makes them, as Paul would say, you know, more capital ready. One nice thing about Detroit is that there's been a pretty strong effort by the philanthropic community to assist minority business owners in order to avail yourself of those resources. I mean, you have to have a portfolio that you can present that makes a good case that you can be successful. So when I'm there uh, as part of a team of Miller Canfield lawyers, we're trying to give the team, the cohort members, a few tools to make them better able to access the uh, resources that are available. And as we produce this re-release, Tom Lynn and three other Miller Canfield lawyers are headed to Osborne for a session with the 28th cohort. Tom estimates they have supported at least 500 small business entrepreneurs over the course of this partnership. We have helped our businesses receive $3 million in capital funding. That can be grants, loans, lines of credits, etc. We have businesses that have been successful in, in going from, they could have been the business in their home, they having their first commercial location. They own property that they purchase and own. 
not leasing, not renting, but ownership. The building of wealth, the growth of wealth, the building of sustainability. It has taken place. I'll give you a private example. One of our businesses is Blessed Beginning Learning Center. She has a child daycare. Her business was based in her home. We were very successful in helping her and, and helping her leverage. $240,000 in grant funding. How did she get there? How did she get to that point? One, she came through our business cohort program and she learned what she needed to learn to be able to utilize resources and assist and the legal learning that she learned per Miller Canfield Law Firm, even she said was monumental. She had no idea about the intellectual properties and the intellectual properties law until she came to a business core program and went through her Miller Canfield session. One of the things I'm really proud of is the kind of association we've had with the Osborne Business Association. Literally, uh, we've assisted some uh, in a small way, but many in a more substantial way, a couple hundred people who are trying to become uh, successful entrepreneurs in the east side of Detroit. And uh, I think as a firm, we are proud and I am proud of that kind of impact. This is really about the increasing the betterment of living conditions. This is going to take a collaborative effort, not just through our ecosystem, but through organizations and other ecosystems as well, to correct past wrongs. It's not going to happen overnight, but until we work on it and start working toward it, it will never happen. That's why I say it's a great time to be living and to be working and doing the things we're doing. Because our, our relationship with Miller Canfield Law Firm is precious. It's precious. And that's why Tom and I, we work very, very close. And this has been existing for five years and hopefully it exists for another five years, another 10 years, doing the work that we do. Because without their pro bono work that's offered by Miller Canfield Law Firm, our cohort would not be impactful in the manner that it is. Without any of our partners, it wouldn't be. But that legal is extremely important. The partnerships between lawyers and community-led organizations are indeed precious. Detroit is lucky to have so many grassroots leaders like Paul Garrison, to have dedicated pro bono lawyers like those from Miller Canfield, and to have a nonprofit like Michigan Community Resources that supports them to come together. If there's ever a time in our in our nation and in the world where we should be leaning in to our unique skill sets and find ways to connect to those that have a need or require things that may be outside of themselves, it's it's now. Jamil's point about this being the time to lean in and connect with small businesses, it is even more relevant now as we are re-releasing this episode in 2023. And here's why. After those terrible trends in 2020, we have seen positive trends in the last couple of years. The 2021 round of pandemic business loans was targeted to businesses in minority communities. And according to preliminary research from the National Bureau of Economic Research, the targeting worked and the money got to those businesses. And new businesses are opening up. In the third quarter of 2021, the number of black business owners in the U.S. was actually 28 percent higher than it was pre-pandemic. In 2022, 
applications to open new businesses in majority Black counties went up 103% compared to 2019. There are a lot of new businesses with big ideas and motivated founders getting started. But those founders, they need nurturing. Most of these businesses are run by the founder without employees, and the founders often have another day job. It takes five years to be considered a mature business. It takes stability and capital to quit your day job and hire staff. Business incubators like the Osborne Business Association nurture those Black entrepreneurs to increase their chances of growing. And pro bono lawyers like Tom Lynn and his colleagues help those entrepreneurs build solid foundations so they can thrive and weather future downturns. Now seems like a really great time for your firm to start contributing your skill set to all the new businesses getting off the ground. You can find your opportunities by looking at Exponentum, a national network of business law pro bono providers dedicated to improving the quality of life in low and moderate income communities. You'll find a link to their website on the podcast page. And in case you are not convinced yet, I'll let Shamil Dobbs have the last word on why you want to get this pro bono work started right away. For those attorneys that may be listening in, I would suggest that this is not one-sided. This is symbiotic. As much as you're bringing your legal tools to the table, you will find that the process of providing pro bono expertise to whether it's an individual or a nonprofit or a small business, you will learn so much about yourself and that person. The world is ready to receive your gifts. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu/probono.